Hello and welcome to Drill to Detail, the podcast series about the world of big data, analytics and data warehousing, and the people and technology behind the headlines. Each week I'm joined by someone who either works with or builds analytic platforms driving innovation in the industry, or like me analyzes the market and thinks about what all the impact this is going to be on the economy and on business and so on. Just like my guest in this, this week's episode, um, none other than Paul Sonderiger, who some of you might know from presentations he's given at Open World or other events around the world in his role as Oracle's big data strategist. Paul came to Oracle through the Indeca acquisition a few years ago, and whilst the technology from Indeca went on to inspire much of the new BI and uh, big data products Oracle are now, um, are now sort of deploying, um, Paul's been traveling the world talking to executives about big data, and most recently, a concept is termed data capital, which is a way of thinking about data and big data initiatives from an economic perspective. So Paul, thanks for coming on the show, and why don't you introduce yourself properly to, um, to the audience? Sure. Well, it's great to be here, uh, Mark. I appreciate the opportunity to sit down and chat about data capital. Um, but by way of introduction, uh, yes, I'm big data strategist at Oracle. And um, uh, before that, uh, in DECA, and before that, uh, I was an analyst at Forrester Research for um, a number of years. And the thing that I uh, do now at Oracle is lead uh, our work on data capital. And um, the essence of that uh, work is to flesh out the economic story behind uh, big data and uh, tease out the implications for competitive strategy. And then to spend time with our customers um, talking about what it means uh, to their businesses that the entire world is being digitized and datafied. Um, what are the implications for competitive strategy? Uh, and then what kind of technology would then support uh, these new competitive strategies that they want to put into place? Thanks, Paul. It's great to have you with us. So I first heard you speak a couple of years ago, Oracle Open World, I think it was, we talked about how everything is now being digitized and datified and explained it in a really accessible, business-relevant way, why customers should be thinking about what that means and the opportunities and the threats it brings. And then I followed your writing and presentation since then and seen that evolve into what you're now referring to as data capital. So can you go into a bit more detail? What is data capital? Sure. Well, let's begin at the beginning and talk about what data capital is. Um, you know, I should say first uh, that data capital is not a metaphor. This is not data is the new oil, data is the new gold, data is the new electricity, although that one is particularly good. Of the metaphors, that's the best one. But uh, this is not a metaphor. What we're saying with data capital is that data fulfills the literal economic textbook definition of capital. Uh, so capital uh, in the eyes of economists, is a produced good as opposed to a natural resource. And uh, it is produced through some process, and there's investment that goes into building that process and whatever technology gets used in it. But the output of that process uh, is then another, is then an input into creating another good or service. It's what economists call an economic factor of production. So without going any further, let me just give you our definition of data capital. Data capital is the recorded information necessary to produce a good or service, which is really boring. So let me give you an example. If you think about a retailer who wants to go into a new market, you know, a new geographical market, 
They have to build new facilities or buy facilities. They have to extend their supply chain, build out the inventory. If the retailer lacks the financial capital to make all of those investments, it cannot go to that new region. By the same token, if that retailer wants to create a new uh, dynamic pricing algorithm or a new recommendation engine, but lacks the data to feed that engine, they cannot create that new service. Data is a kind of capital, an economic factor of production in new digital products and services. So, Paul, I've read in articles you've written for Forbes and so on there, this idea that data capital can actually substitute for other forms of capital, which obviously has some fairly kind of significant implications in terms of kind of new entrance to a market and how you get companies started and how you kind of, I suppose, gain market share. What do you really mean by that? Explain a bit more about that idea. Sure. Um, the, the essence of this, uh, this claim uh, that data capital can be substituted for financial capital, for human capital, um, comes from uh, an activity-based perspective on how companies work. And this is really based on uh, the work of uh, Michael Porter at Harvard Business School. And um, the activity-based perspective of how firms work is that everything that happens in a company is an activity. Uh, so creating customer uh, segmentation for a marketing campaign, handling a trouble ticket uh, when a customer calls up, um, dis distributing product to warehouses, all of those things are activities. Every single activity has a financial component, uh, a uh, skill components, that's where your people are, uh, has a process component, a technology component, and an information component. That information component is now being digitized. And as that happens, as you dramatically cut the cost to uh, capture data, uh, capture information from uh, these uh, activities and use information in these activities, as you dramatically cut the cost of doing that, it turns out that you can do things like run that process at higher levels of throughput with greater quality, with lower error rates, um, at, with uh, less actual financial capital with the less money to do it. Um, and, you know, this is not, we're not the only one with this perspective. You're actually starting to see McKinsey talk about the fact that these new online consumer services, uh, they call them asset light companies because their tangible assets are uh, so small uh, relative to their valuations, especially. Uh, and so there is where you get a vivid example of data capital substituting for traditional financial capital. So um, it's interesting you say there about the principles of data capital. And I've read before some articles of yours and seen some presentations where you talk about the idea of there being right. laws of data capital or three principles, sort of harkening back to, I suppose, I suppose the kind of laws of motion and, and so on. So just, just define for us, first of all, what do you mean by the principles of data capital? Here are the three principles of data capital. One, data comes from activity. And so that means the, that if your company is not part of the activity when it happens, your chance to capture its data is lost forever. doesn't come back. Two, data tends to make more data. Uh, and here, the real focus is on algorithms. So while analytics for people are great, algorithms operate far beyond human scale. And more importantly, they create data about their own performance that can be fed back into the model to improve their future performance. And three, platforms tend to win. Uh, 
Platform competition is uh, a normal thing in information-intensive industries, and the digitization and datafication of more activities brings platform competition to industries that have never seen it before. Yeah, certainly. I mean, we, we if you think about some of the uh, disruption in markets, like markets by the likes of, say, Uber with transportation, um, you know, hotels with Airbnb, I guess probably the most you know striking example is is Google with the advertising industry. Oh yeah, I, I mean Google is just such an extraordinary example of uh, not only the insight into uh, data as a kind of capital, but just really early on, um, you know the um, uh, their index, just their just their search index, their uh, their search index that is a proprietary data capital asset, um, and uh, and then. Uh, you know, another great insight is that they then use that proprietary data capital asset to feed their uh, search ranking um, uh, algorithms and to deliver this search service, which then produces new proprietary data capital. So they capture data about everything you and I click on in the search results. And perhaps more importantly, they click they collect data about everything you and I do not click on in the search results. And that the, the record of our actions there then becomes an input into the performance of the search algorithm the next time a user like you searches on the term that you just searched on. Um, so that is using data to make data, which is actually one of the key uh, principles of data capital. I'm particularly interested by that last principle you mentioned there, the idea that platforms tend to win. I think we can all kind of yeah, we all get that in terms of things like email and communications and, and, and kind of cloud and so on there. That, you know, if you own the platform that runs the transactions, that hosts people email, email, then you've got particular insights there into people's behavior and activities and desires that you know, other people wouldn't have, other companies wouldn't have. But where have you seen that apply outside of uh, those areas in, in more traditional industries? Sure, sure. Well, uh, the idea that platforms tend to win um, is something that... Um, we observe in a lot of information intensive industries, technology industries, especially. Um, so you of course remember, uh, the battle for the desktop operating system. Um, and that was, if that was a uh, platform, uh, competition, um, the, you know, to be the platform between application developers and, and, uh, users. Similarly, the, that's what we see with the battle for the mobile operating system. It's what we see in video games where a gaming console is a platform between developers on one side and gamers on the other. Um, but, uh, I should be careful to point out here that what we're talking about um, in this case is platforms through the eyes of economists. So not not uh, the way that technologists think about platform as you know a fundamental technology on which you build higher levels of the stack. For a moment, step back and, and let's look through the eyes of economists at the the idea of platform. To do that, let's look at credit cards. Uh, so a credit card is a payment platform and, um, what distinguishes a platform business is that it serves a two-sided market and there could be more, but there are at least two sides. Um, and, uh, so with credit cards, you have consumers on one side, those of us using credit cards to pay for things. And then on the other side, the other side of the market is merchants. 
retailers, restaurants who are taking credit cards uh, for payment for for things. And um, the interesting thing about uh, platforms, uh, economic platforms, is that growth on one side of the market tends to encourage growth on the other side of the market. So we as consumers, we want to have in our pocket the card that more merchants will take. Merchants want to take the card that more consumers have in their pocket. And this, uh, in uh, economists call this uh, indirect network effects. And the reason it matters so much is that it tends to lead to a winner-take-all outcome. And the reason that's important uh, when we think about the rise of data capital is that the digitization and datification of more activities bring platform competition to industries that have never seen it before. And this digitization and recording of everything that we do, the activities and so on, isn't just limited to, to companies. We're all doing it ourselves using health bands and health trackers and so on. Uh, that's exactly right. I mean, for example, some insurers are worried that Apple, uh, with its watch and with its, with its uh, health kit, uh, may be able to gather sufficient data about consumers' health that they might be able to price risk better than the insurance companies. Um, so, you know, this, this is, this, this is, and this is simply what happens when you, uh, digitize, um, activities and you dramatically cut the cost of that information component. You cut the cost to capture the data, cut the, cut the cost to use the data. Um, and then as a result, uh, you can, you can then use that unique data in unique ways and it creates, uh, all kinds of new, um, competitive dynamics. You know, one of the crazy places where you where you see this is in agriculture, uh, and it's now possible to have drones uh, that will take photographs of the crops, and they'll do these spectrographic uh, uh, analyses of that picture, uh, looking for how much green is in it, because that's a proxy for how much chlorophyll is in the leaves of the plants. And that data is then fed to the fertilizer spreader, which changes the mix and the volume of fertilizer that the spreader uh, puts as it moves across the field. So now the mix and the volume is tailored to the plants and the tractor in the middle is in competition to be the platform for digital agricultural services. And that is not the way that makers of heavy agricultural equipment think about competition, but now they must. So one of the arguments I hear um, from customers who perhaps haven't invested in, in big data and, and, and these new kind of platforms and so on is that, um, first of all, there's too much of it to, to make sense of. And secondly, it's so freely available that actually, you know, what's the value in, in having data? What's the value in owning the platform? Yeah, the, 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 the common understanding of data is that it's everywhere and there's so much of it that we can't pay attention uh, to all of it. That is true, but it really misses the point. Um, data is not abundant. Data consists of countless unique observations. And that sets up a competition for data. So th this really comes from the, the first principle of data capital. Data comes from activity. And uh, what this means uh, is, is that if your company is not part of an activity when it happens, your chance to capture its data is lost forever, doesn't come back. 
Uh, and the reason is that in interaction with a customer um, that takes place in a particular, it takes place at a particular time with a particular context, with particular market dynamics, it only happens once. And so if you're not part of that activity uh, at the time that it happens, th that's it. You don't get the data from that activity. What's worse is that if your rival handles that sale, supports that uh, research for a product, um, handles that ride from point A to point B, they get the data and you don't. And they now have this unique observation, set of observations, really, from that whole activity, which they can then combine, you know, with the uh, other data that they may have accumulated to then deliver a unique service. And you can't. Um, and, the, and so the big implication here is that companies have to develop the skill to look out at the world and see the data that isn't there. Not yet. And then put new sensors into the world, new mobile apps, new ways of digitizing and datafying those activities uh, before their rivals do. Companies are in competition for data. And, and this also makes things uh, very interesting for, for IT, where something that was considered a cost in the past, you know, something a burden in a way, handling transactions, you know, dealing with all the kind of the aspects of, of putting order through and so on, that can be now an asset and a, a unique bit of insight that others don't have. Yeah, the, the real switch in perspective here uh, is to realize that uh, data is not merely a record of what happened. It is also a raw material for creating new digital services. That's really the shift that uh, large enterprises ha uh, have to make. And, uh, you know, uh, um, this is a shift that is it's actually a little bit difficult. It's a it's a change in perspective that's a little bit difficult to make because we have lots of um, highly skilled, highly accomplished executives who are very used to the idea that the business is the business and then they get reports uh, that help them answer the question, how are we doing? The reports then enabled them to make better decisions. And that's sort of like the, 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 we have lots of leaders who think of that as the life cycle of data. And don't get me wrong, that is a good life cycle of data. That is a life cycle of data. However, however, there is this new thing, which is you can now create a digital service delivered straight into consumers' pockets that can only be driven by aggregated data. And so, that, so data is not merely a record of what happened. It is a critical raw material in creating those digital services. And that's, that's the, the new perspective that, that executives uh, have to embrace. And you know, being the organization that has un unique access to, to, to this data because you own the platform, because you have the, the records and transactions and so on, the effect of that kind of you know, it multiplies really when you think about how you can use that to improve the, the, the products and services you offer, the accuracy of predictions and, and, and so on. Absolutely. I, there, this, we see this in fraud detection, for example. Um, so in uh, uh, fraud detection, uh, we have a customer who checks person-to-person uh, -person mobile payments for fraudulent activity. So, uh, you know, let's say that uh, you go out to uh, dinner with a friend, um, you forgot your wallet, uh, you need to split the tab later, and uh, you just want to make a payment from your checking account to their checking account, you do it on your phone, um, and uh, uh, it's all digital really fast. Well, all of those transactions get sniffed in real time 
for possible fraudulent activity. And um, the challenge with fraud detection uh, is that you have to you want to avoid false negatives uh, where you miss actual fraudulent activity uh, because then the bad guys get away with it. And you also want to avoid false positives where you flag a legitimate transaction as fraudulent because then your actual customers get really irritated. Um, and so uh, this company, they get information about both of these things, about, about uh, scams that they missed through uh, both customer complaints and their own offline investigations. And they get information about legitimate uh, transactions that the algorithm wrongfully flagged, uh, again, from customer complaints. Well, that data goes back into the model to improve the scoring mechanism for fraud, improving that algorithm's future ability to catch the real bad guys without disrupting real transactions. And that cycle is that cycle then enables them to get better faster than the other guy. So this is great, but the reality is for a lot of companies that there's a kind of lack of, of, of people with skills in, in this area, what we call data scientists. Um, and the tools, the BI tools we use currently, typically, you know, they, they're very backward looking in. They tell you what data is, what things have happened in the past, but their ability to do kind of algorithms and predictive models and so on is, is lacking. So do you think, you know, that the, we need to get more data scientists or do you think we need to kind of invest the time in, in tooling so that tools do this for us instead and, and take away some of the complexity in doing uh, stuff now that requires a data scientist to do? Uh, we're going to need both more data scientists and better tools that um, enable more uh, citizen data scientists. Um, uh, and so, yes, we're going to need more. Uh, and, and we should be specific here about what we mean by uh, data scientists. We're going to need more people who can represent real world relationships mathematically. Um, and that's not a skill that should be limited to PhDs in statistics. I mean, that really is a skill that should that that should become part of the uh, regular, um, you know, bag of tricks for any effective manager uh, from here on out. Um, we're and, and then, you know, and we're also going to need more of the people who support those uh, uh, those people who can represent real world relationships mathematically. So the people who can actually write the code, who can do the data wrangling, you know, who can keep the systems happy and all that kind of thing. In addition, though, we're also going to need tools that make it easier for um, managers who have a familiarity with uh, statistical inference and other statistical techniques but whose real expertise is in understanding, you know, how medical device manufacturers understand whether the therapies they enable are better than what was there before. We need those. We need to enable those people to ask more of the questions they have in their minds more easily. So, Paul, just changing sort of tack a little bit, really. I'm interested in the job that you do. So your job title is a big data strategist for Oracle. You go and talk to customers. I'm curious to know how, how that goes and what you do. But also I'm curious to understand how you can how you add value in, in industries that you're not so aware of, really. You know, how, how do you take the ideas you've got and make them relevant to, uh, to, to each person's, each company's industry? So just tell us how, how the job works and what you do, first of all. Uh, yeah, a big part of my job is uh, giving our customers eyes to see. Uh, and a lot of that is 
the conversation that we're having right here, you know, the idea that data comes from activity and you're actually in competition to get it. Data tends to make more data. So you algorithms that produce data about their own performance to improve their future performance is really big. And platform competition is coming to uh, industries that have never seen it before. Just those. Th so those ideas um, are really just. You know, they're really just lenses through which to to look at the world. But then what happens is, um, you know, then what happens is that our customers will say, hey, you know, wait a minute. We've been thinking about, um, you know, we make, oh, um, cat food. Uh, and uh, we don't know anything about how cats eat. You know, we, we like, you know, don't get me wrong. Like our product people, they know a lot about how cats eat and what cats need to eat. But we don't actually know how the cats eating our food eat it. Like how often? Like do do the majority of cats kind of eat once a day? and Or do the majority of cats have food available all the time and they just kind of, you know, graze on it? Like, and what does that mean for their health? Is there a way that we could capture data about that? And then we can have a discussion about, of course, of course, there's a way that you could capture data about that. I mean, talk about belling the cat. This is better than that. This is following the cat around all day. You could, you know, you could put, you could put sensors on the bowl itself so that it detects when the cat is near because you now have got a, a you know, an object on the collar. And they're like, hmm, well, who sells those? Well, you could. <laughs> like, oh, wait a minute. So wait, we could actually turn the collar, the bowl, into accessories around our cat food product. Yes, you could. This is what it means to look out at the world and see the data that is not there. And, you know, I, I, this is a, a deliberately trivial uh, example. Um, and yet, you know, business empires have been built on less. So, so far we've talked very generically about big data and about uh, data capital and, and so on, but let's, let's kind of move on a little bit to think about um, Oracle. So um, why is big data so important to Oracle? Um, you know, how is Oracle's platform differentiated? Um, and why do you think that Oracle are in, a, are in a particularly strong position to help with this idea of data capital and, and be the platform that customers use to get the most out of this new opportunity in this new area and this new technology? Well, big data is hugely important to Oracle uh, because Oracle makes the things that make data more valuable. I, you know, the, the, this company has a massive portfolio of uh, uh, technology that goes from the very bottom layer of infrastructure uh, through all of the, uh, you know, all, through all of the data management and integration um, uh, and security pieces that you find in that kind of platform layer, all the way up to applications, analytics, and algorithms that you, you know, think of as sort of the consumption points that, that you, you know, you could talk about living in that, that uh, upper tier, that software layer. And, and, and now, of course, um, Oracle uh, is reinventing enterprise computing um, for the cloud. And what that really means is reinventing enterprise computing as a set of services that are easy to buy and use. Now, one of the things that's really remarkable, in my opinion, about um, Oracle's strategy is that when you're talking about large enterprises with huge investments in on-premise um, storage and computing uh, capability, you know, there's going to be a coexistence of 
cloud, public cloud, and um, on-premise computing for a decade, probably more. And so the question then becomes, well, how do you how do you deliver how do you deliver enterprise computing as just a set of services as far as the business is concerned when some of them are going to come out of a public cloud and then some of them still are going to come from uh, behind the firewall, but you want them to appear to the business as just being a you know bunch of bunch of services that they can consume? Well, um, Oracle uniquely can do that. Um, and, uh, and Oracle's adopted this, this really interesting, um, and, and I think really compelling vision, uh, that says, Hey, let's build out a public cloud using a particular technical architecture, which we can also deliver behind the firewall in your data center, if that's what you'd like and make the two of them work together. You know, you talk about smoothing the path of of migration to cloud computing, which is absolutely necessary for crunching these uh, huge amounts and uh, huge diversity of of new data sources. Uh, And that is uh, just a a really great approach. um, I think I mentioned this to you on the call when we kind of set this up, that I was open world recently. And um, I I was really seriously impressed with with some of the stuff that um, is coming out of Oracle now around deploying big data into the cloud, for example, and and just generally the the effort and initiative and the kind of ruthlessness in a way of Oracle getting involved in cloud and and starting to kind of move into that market is is very interesting. And I guess probably, you know, one observation about big data is that Oracle perhaps doesn't get the credit it's due sometimes because it doesn't tend to tell the story and focuses more on kind of like technology and so on. Um, but but certainly um, certainly I was very impressed with what I saw at Open World and, and the way Oracle is kind of really seriously moving into this market now. Yeah, I, you know there's um, there's a, a knock against uh, Oracle uh, that there's just no romance at Oracle. You know, there's just no uh, Oracle's not great at uh, telling stories. Um, the, the, there's there's no you know uh, um, high-minded talk about uh, really changing the world. You know that you get from other firms, and um, and frankly, I think that's true. I think that criticism um, hits the mark. I think the flip side of that, though, is that when uh, when you talk with executives at Oracle about how are we going to answer this cloud challenge, there is no romance in the analysis. It is hard-minded and perceptive. And the basic for the basic evaluation is, oh, cloud is inevitable. I mean, it's obvious. No, the whole history of computing is about is about uh, essentially increasing scale and access at lower cost. And that's what cloud does. So fine. So uh, we're going to uh, reinvent enterprise computing for the cloud. um, And here's what it takes. It takes the entire stack, reinventing the entire stack. So we're going to do infrastructure as a service. We're going to do platform as a service. We're going to do software as a service. Uh, And um, there's there's just no romance in that evaluation whatsoever. Uh, it's really clinical. It's really analytical, um, and it's really effective. So, you know, I'd agree that this strategy is certainly effective, but I do think there's romance in it actually. At least, you know, romance in terms of what it means for customers, what the capabilities it gives them, and and you know, the ability to take an idea that's small and build on it and deploy it to the larger scale. Um, but also the new product areas that it really opens up in terms of things for Oracle. You know, you think about some of the services and, and capabilities that this platform is going to enable really to go well beyond just basic hosting and, and, and running of Hadoop in the cloud. 
That's exactly right. Um, and there is, uh, in fact, a entirely new kind of business uh, that Oracle offers, um, uh, data as a service. And, you know, this, this, uh, this again, is, is fits squarely into the data capital story. So the data as a service uh, business um, has got 3 billion consumer uh, profiles in it, 400 million uh, business profiles. It's got data from $4 trillion worth of online and offline transactions. Uh, and this is data that is available to marketers, advertisers, um, people who might be doing uh, uh, market assessments for new products. Um, you know, we see CPG companies, consumer packaged goods companies, using uh, this huge uh, amount of data. It's actually the largest data marketplace. Um, using data from this, this data marketplace uh, to wrap context around their own customer data, um, which then enables them to see attributes of their customers that they were previously blind to. Uh, you know, the fact that, for example, um, a particular uh, shopper who is uh, buying um, healthy uh, frozen meals um, is really interested in time saving. It's not the healthy aspect. That was not the key. The key was um, this uh, this real need around time saving um, as a result of their work and uh, commute patterns. So um, you know th this this uh, data as a service business is in addition to the software as a service, platform as a service, infrastructure as a service business, and it's one that is entirely based on creating new services from unique data capital. But isn't isn't this isn't the kind of move towards cloud and deploying things in the cloud and managed services, isn't that really something that, you know, whilst it's good for the business, it's you know, a threat to IT? And isn't the move towards, say, Hadoop and uh, systems like that a threat to traditional kind of IT workers working in, say, Oracle and, and so on? You know, is, is this all really at the expense of the IT department? Uh, well, I would put the situation a, a little bit differently. Um, I, I would say that there is an enormous opportunity here for those IT departments that would grab onto it. You know, the, the story about data capital um, is that this is now a new kind of unique resource that enables competitive advantage. This is the, and you know, the argument that the IT department has been making for decades now is, Look, you can't run your business. You can't run this oil refinery without our data. You cannot, you know, prove out your oil reserves without our data. You, 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 you can't price risk without the uh, data assets that that support it all. Um, IT is critical to the business. And, you know, and that was the last part was where the where business executives would always go, mm, I don't know about I don't know about IT, because, I mean, you can you, you can't run this business without all of our people here now is the opportunity to say these data assets, uh, which uh, in the IT department stewards and shepherds, these data assets are unique assets that sit behind some of our critical aspects of competitive advantage. 
Um, and that then elevates the conversation to one that's more about business value. It's more about strategy. Um, it invites the conversation about, well, okay, what new kinds of unique value can we create from these unique assets? And then you're into um, algorithms uh, and data science activity that demonstrate uh, new problems that can be solved or you know, demonstrate new solutions uh, to uh, to critical problems and lead the path to new value from new services. So as this idea evolves of data being a form of capital that's as important as any other form of capital to a business in terms of growth and, and so on, um, yeah, I suppose really it opens up quite a few questions about things like ownership of data, you know, how easily it's shared or not shared, um, privacy and so on. You know, what do you think the implications are of, of this new way of thinking of, uh, of data and, and uh, the value that's now placed on it? Well, I, I think there are a number of implications uh, from uh, this idea of data as a kind of capital you know, that we're just beginning to explore. Um, you know, for example, um, uh, you raised one about uh, ownership of that data capital. Um, you know, well, what is the proper role? Uh, for a, a, a company who has um, a unique data capital asset that they invested to create, but which records the actions uh, and preferences of consumers. There's still a lot of work uh, to do there uh, to uh, flesh out that responsibility and figure out how to um, discharge that responsibility effectively while still enabling innovation. Um, uh, so, that, so there's still a lot of work to do there. One of the other areas, though, uh, is in government. Um, and not just, you know, not, not just tangentially, you know, about privacy and, and things like that, but in thinking about, um, well, uh, Data assets that are created by government-owned activities and facilities, um, who owns that and who should benefit from it? Um, so, you know, there are um, uh, some of the largest ports in the world are facilities that are owned by governments and highly, highly automated. Uh, those data assets are unique. They are highly valuable. Um should, let's say, uh, should entrepreneurs in those countries get privileged access to those data assets? Should data science students in universities in those uh, countries get privileged access to uh, those data assets? If so, um, on what terms? Um, how do the citizens of that country uh, then benefit from that usage? All of these are new questions that um, really lay out uh, kind of a curriculum of work to do in data capital for a long time to come. And we're starting to see this debate happening, particularly in Europe at the moment. Uh, Google News had to close down its operations in Spain recently because a law came through to say that uh, even linking to you know, newspaper websites without paying for it um, is not allowed. So that service is now gone. Uh, and also, I think I read, read somewhere as well, uh, again in Europe, where um, uh, you know, people and companies were allowed to use uh, data from public websites. 
uh, as long as they didn't use it to create new businesses. Well, in a way, um, that's the kind of one use of it that would actually yeah. give value to the to the country. Well, and I think it's and I think it's important to say that that idea that um, okay, you can use this data as long as you don't create a company from it is not necessarily wrong. There is a really valid argument there. Um, the uh, and it's and um, however, there is uh, another valid argument that makes the opposite point. You know, that says no, look. The, the one of the greatest uses of this thing would be to create economic value from it. And it creates jobs. I, it, it actually possibly would create revenue, which, well, maybe it could be taxed or maybe there's an implicit tax or some kind of tariff that then, you know, benefits the, the, uh, the, the citizens of that nation, much the way that um, there have been oil dividends paid to citizens of oil rich countries. You know, the, the, the thing is that those debates um, need to be elevated. They need to be raised up. We, we need a more active conversation around those. Well, Paul, um, just, we're just about out of time now. So um, thank you very much for coming on the show. And uh, it's been great going through, um, I suppose, actually the economic side of, of big data, the implications of that, and, uh, and this idea, obviously, of data capital that really, I think it really kind of puts uh, the value of what we're, do- what we're doing uh, with kind of data systems and, and big data architectures and so on in a real kind of economic context and uh, certainly a lot to think about. That's exactly right. Future. And thank you very much for uh, having me, Mark. It's just been a pleasure. And that's the end of the show now. And as usual, you can find show notes uh, and uh, links to previous editions of the, uh, the podcast on the website, www.drillsadetail.com. Thank you. Thank you.